and welcome to the PathMig Psychiatry for Primary Care podcast. Hi everyone, this is Whitney Landa, Director of Education for Behavioral Health and one of the psychiatrists in the Palo Alto Division. Today we're going to talk about suicide screening and how to handle that in our offices on our telehealth visits. Why it's important, we know that the rate of suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviors is increasing, especially among teenagers. So it's important that we screen for it because a lot of patients, if you don't ask, they're not going to tell you. But if you do ask, they will share, they do want help, but someone needs to bring it up to them. The way we are encouraging you to screen for suicidality in your clinic is the Columbia Suicide Screening Tool. It is a great brief tool that is very, very helpful. It gives you a template on how to do it, so you don't have to think about it. You know, what should I say? How do I ask this very hard question? It's right there for you. The CSSRS, Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, is a really quick screening tool, but it's very, very effective. It will only take you a few minutes in your appointment to ask the questions. And there's really two primary questions. The first is, have you ever wished you were dead or wished you could go to sleep and not wake up? Yes, no. The second question is, have you actually had any thoughts of killing yourself? If they say yes to that, then you'll go through and ask the next set of questions to get more details about the severity of those thoughts. So the next three questions are about plan intent and how recent it was. And we have great tips on what to do if you get a yes or a no to any of those questions. And I really encourage you to just look on Epic at the CSSRS. It's under Flow Sheets, and it'll have the questions right there for you. You don't have to remember the questions. In terms of how to ask the questions, please ask them as if you were asking about their bowel movements or, you know, sports injuries. But try to ask it in a very sort of non-charged, non-squeamish way. If you ask them in a squeamish way, they probably won't answer you honestly. If you've just asked them in a straightforward way, they'll usually tell you if they're open to telling you at all. And if they do say yes, just take a deep breath, try to stay centered and move forward. If we panic, it makes them regret telling us. So we do wanna stay really calm for our patients. And you might be asking, why do I need to add this screener? I already do the PHQ-9. The PHQ-9 asks that question nine, a very vague thoughts of hurting yourself or being better off dead, but it's not very specific. A lot of times that might be a self-harm thought or a really vague passive death wish. We want to make sure that's not true suicidality. And the PHQ-9 is not great at differentiating the two which is why we really encourage you to do the CSSRS as well. And even in psychiatry, when we get a lot of yeses to these questions, our hearts drop a little bit into our stomachs. Obviously, we don't want any of our patients to feel this way, but we have really clear strategies on what to do. So if they say, 
yes, they've had these thoughts. They're vague thoughts. They haven't thought about how to do it. They don't want to act on it. Talking with them about, you know, a referral to psychiatry, a referral to therapy, and giving them that community resource packet that we have on our SharePoint site so that they can use it to help them find a therapist and psychiatrist if they can't get into the PAMP psychiatry department. And even though you may not be worried about them imminently, uh, because these are sort of vague, passive thoughts, I would still try to get them back into the clinic for a follow-up appointment within two weeks. The power of follow-up is amazing. The decrease in suicidal behaviors when the anyone follows up with the patient, it can be a social worker from the emergency room, their primary care doctor. It can be any sort of clinician that follows up that shows that kind of caring has a really powerful impact on the degree of suicidal behavior they might have in the future. So I do really encourage you to schedule that two-week follow-up. And it can be a phone call. You can say, I'm going to call you in two weeks and check in with you and see how you're doing and see how it's going for you getting in to see a therapist. So the next few yeses are a little bit tricky. So if they say yes, and they've thought about plans, and it was more than a month ago, you're okay to again set them a quick follow-up appointment, ideally within that two-week window, as long as it's currently passive, and really encourage them to call a psychiatrist or therapist, but also do a safety plan with them. And a really great example of a safety plan is the Brown Stanley safety plan. That's the one I like to use in my practice. And again, it just walks you through the questions really easily. The most important question on that are what are the things that lead to these thoughts, the triggers for the thoughts, because ideally you want to prevent the thoughts. And then there's sections for you know, distractors, activities you can do to distract from the thoughts, people you can reach out to for distraction, people you can reach out to for help, and definitely having a lot of hotline numbers and easy, urgent help for them on those sheets is really important. I encourage patients with suicidal thoughts to put it into their phone and just have it in their contacts so that they don't have to search through and find the phone number. They have it right at hand. Now, if they've had a plan for suicide or practiced anything about suicide, whether it's buying a huge, you know, thing of Advil at Costco and thinking, oh, I could use this, you know, that's enough for me, even if they do regularly buy that Advil anyways, or, you know, going downstairs and looking to see what kind of ropes they might have in their basement, those are suicidal actions you're gonna send them to the emergency room or call for an urgent evaluation on that SharePoint site I keep referring to. Awesome resources. There are lists of urgent um, care clinics and places that will come to the patient to evaluate them, especially if they're at home, if you feel like they're not really at imminent risk but you want someone to see them that day. And they will do a full safety assessment, help the patient develop a safety plan, and get them to the hospital if they need it. If they're really practicing these thoughts and they don't feel safe, there's some level of intent, they obviously need to go immediately to the emergency room. I wouldn't 
call for those services or send them to a walk-in urgent mental health care clinic, I would just send them straight to the emergency room because that's really the only way to get admitted to a psychiatric unit and they need to be screened for admission. And they'll be able to see a psychiatrist that day, certainly if they go to the emergency room. Regardless of what is said in those yeses, you want to see the patient back in 24 to 48 hours. So if they've practiced in the last few weeks, but it's passive now, they don't have intent now, I would say 48 hours is probably fine. Anything else, I would really shoot for within 24 hours. The reality of our system is they're probably going to be sent home with a list of resources, just like you gave them off our SharePoint site, and they're not going to be admitted, um, but they'll have gotten some sort of interventions, uh, even if they're short-term interventions to use themselves at home, it's still worth doing and getting them that psychiatric assessment is really important. So I'm not trying to say that sending them to the emergency room is futile, but there is a high chance they're coming home after that and you want to have that follow-up scheduled. Again, it can be a phone call. It can be a telehealth visit. I think a telehealth visit is a little bit better than a phone call in those situations, but whatever fits into your and the patient's uh, schedule and sort of rubric of what they're comfortable with because, again, the follow-up piece is super critical. You want them to feel cared for and know that they're important to you and that you care about what happens to them. So one question we're often asked is, how do I get them to the emergency room? I mean, they're in my clinic or they're sitting at home and we're talking about how do I make that happen? And the official best for your liability recommendation is that you call the police and have the police take them to the emergency room and do an assessment for 5150. And sometimes we make that call. Sometimes when I call the police, they'll say, well, we're really busy. We'll try to be there. It might be four hours. And I know that's not reasonable for my patient. So, or for me, you know, we all have busy schedules. So having someone sit with us for four hours or with one of our staff for four hours is not really realistic. It's just not something we can do. So if they have that significant other who can take them, that's great. And I will do that if I feel safe and feel like they are going to make it to that emergency room. If I don't feel safe, like the person's very resistant to going to the emergency room, I'm not sure that that significant other or family members really going to be able to get them there. I will still try to use either the police or one of the crisis units. Um, there's a great list of the crisis units that will actually come out to you on the SharePoint site as well and great resources there. So I don't hesitate to call them. And it's the same thing if the patient's at home. If the patient's at home and they're able to bring in their spouse or parent and they're like, we're going to go to the emergency room right now. I say, great, do that. And then I want to message. I want to hear from you when you're in the emergency room. And I'll actually call the emergency room they're going to and give them a heads up and ask for a callback when the patient arrives. So I know that they did get there. And if they're at home and I feel it could be traumatic for them to have the police come to their house, I again will try to use the mental health services to go first. If I'm really stuck, they're too busy, I feel like there's imminent risk. I can't wait. I will call that person's local police department. You don't call 911 for this unless you feel like it's going to be in the next five to 10 minutes. Like they say, I have a gun. It's going to happen right now. Call 911, obviously. But if they say, I just don't feel safe, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I might act on it, 
you're going to call their local police office jurisdiction and ask them to do a welfare check. And the police should call you back after they've done their welfare check and let you know what happened. And if you've sent the police out and you feel that you hear back from them, they didn't take it seriously, or you know, the kid's story changed really quickly, and you know, no matter what the parents said, they were listening to the kid, for instance, that does happen, I will still sometimes follow up with a crisis team. Uh, Uplift is great in the South Bay. A lot of counties, Santa Clara and San Mateo, for instance, they both have uh, mobile crisis units that will go out to the house. So I still will call for that follow-up if I feel that the police welfare check wasn't, you know, what I wanted it to be. So don't hesitate to use both. And I make it really clear to families and people that, that I'm not trying to shame them or punish them because sometimes they do feel if the police come to their house, they're in trouble, that it's really just a way to check on them and make sure that they're safe because I care about them. The last point I want to make really, really strongly is the importance of getting them into care. I know it's very difficult to find an outpatient psychiatrist and therapist, but there are really great intensive treatment programs that you can refer patients to. They may have a short wait. If they can't wait a few weeks, they really should be going to the emergency room. But if they say, you know, I do have those passive thoughts, I struggle with them, but I feel really safe. They can wait a week and go to a partial hospitalization program or an intensive outpatient program. So a partial hospitalization program is usually five days a week, kind of nine to three, almost like a workday. And an intensive outpatient program is usually three to four times a week for three or four hours at a time. And they'll be in intensive therapy. It's mostly group. There's some individual. For kids, there's usually a family therapy component. And there's a psychiatrist attached to those programs who will see that patient. They will also have social workers that will help connect that patient with resources going forward. So if they're struggling to find an outpatient psychiatrist or therapist, the program will really help them do so. Again, there's a list of them on the SharePoint site. So go ahead and download that. I encourage you to download it off the SharePoint site ahead of time as well as the crisis numbers because the VPN and the SharePoint can be a little slow. And so especially if you're working from home that day, it's nice to have quick access and not have to wait for the download. And again, I encourage you to go to the flow sheet section of Epic and type in the Columbia Suicide Screener and see the screener come up and you can just look through the questions and familiarize yourself with it and possibly practice asking a few times in a common voice as you would ask anything else so that you feel comfortable doing so with your patients. And again, remember to breathe. The most important thing in screening for suicide and helping patients get through that is showing that you care about them and that you want them to be okay. If you come across as caring and empathetic and that you really want what's for their best interest, Patients see it that way for the most part. They aren't mad at you. They aren't freaked out by the questions. They're just appreciative of the help and the caring, even if they might be frustrated with our systems, which happens a lot. So again, 
Don't be afraid to screen for suicide. Just ask the questions the way they're written. And if someone says yes, just take a breath, remain calm, and just help the patient walk through the steps and knowing that you have resources, you have urgent care services, you have the crisis services that'll go out and assess people. You can call the police if needed, you can send people to the emergency room. You have help and you can use those services to get people into the right treatment for them in that moment. And again, I cannot emphasize enough the role of those intensive outpatient programs because they not only will provide what's needed for stabilization, but they will help them find long-term resources. So use them, use them, use them. They're incredibly helpful. And I hope this episode was helpful. There are a lot of resources on that SharePoint site. Please go look at them and download them so that in these moments when your heart is racing because someone just told you they're suicidal, you have those resources at your fingertips and you don't have to go through and find them. If you click on the SharePoint site link, just go to the resource tab. There are crisis numbers and lists of intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization programs for you to use. That wraps up our episode today on suicide screening. I hope everyone has a great day.